Presents Black Glove Mysteries with Ian Urza and Gregor Mortis. Welcome to Black Glove Mysteries. I'm your host, Greg Amortis, and we're super excited to be back. This is uh, our anniversary month, I guess is what we're going to call it, uh, Ian, but officially January 5th of 2023 was the official debut episode of the uh, Double Double, and this is going to be Double Double 27, so 27 episodes later. I'm your host, Greg Amortis, and we got Ian Urza. What's up, Ian? Hey, how's it going? It's, uh, it's awesome to know that it's been that long already. Yeah, <laughs> the Black Glove Mysteries is awesome. I cannot believe it. Uh, this is exciting, man. This is going to be a good, fun show here tonight. I mean, one year later, plus, as we're recording, this is, what, a week later? <laughs> but we were close. We were close. Uh, but, man, it's been exciting, man. I've enjoyed, uh, of course, doing these segments. Uh, it's, it's fun. It's fun. I love going back and checking out Jallo. But this month, we decided to go with American Jallo uh, as our anniversary. And this has been cool. We did last episode... Uh, we looked at a couple American Jallo, and this week we're doing the same thing, man. Uh, we had some good feedback on the last episode, and tonight we're going to be looking at 1978, The Eyes of Laura Mars, as well as 2011's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Uh, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, first time watch for me. Eyes of Laura Mars, thought was a first time watch, not. Because <laughs> that's how we'll get to when we get to reviewing it here in a minute. Uh, but how you been doing, Ian? Everything good in the world? Yeah, everything's been going pretty well. I love it. Uh, so what we're going to do tonight, listeners, is I'm going to play a couple trailers, or we'll play the trailer for each movie tonight since it's American, and, and we can understand it. And uh, we'll do that as well as break down these big-ass puppies here, and then we'll get to what we're going to do on the next one. Stay tuned as uh, Mortis Vision comes on directly after this uh, Black Glove Mysteries and the Twisted Temptress and myself will be looking at Stephen King's Rose Red. I uh, will break that down in spoiler fashion, so stay tuned for that. And that's kind of finishing up our Stephen King talk as the last episode of Land of the Creeps was about Stephen King. So we just kind of decided to do Rose Red to go along with that. 
so what we're going to do, Ian, let's go ahead and get into this once again. Uh, the philosophy behind this was just for an anniversary. You decided you wanted to look at some American Jalo. I was cool with that because I'm, I'm down for that. Um, it's been exciting, man. This is four, this will be four films that we've seen, uh, with the American quote unquote Jalo feel to it. And I think these definitely, uh, hit in that, that realm for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. I mean, I think we talked a little bit last episode about how Giallo movies, um, aren't always horror movies there. The, they do, they do sort of, um, you know, uh, what's what's the what's the term um they do have some common elements uh and it's it's funny that you know certain movies that we've watched like tightrope for example mm-hmm. and, and the girl with the dragon tattoo wouldn't necessarily be considered horror movies but they would be considered giallo movies i would say yeah definitely i know like um right now we're starting in january this will be our first episode coming up we're going to do our uh, top five horror movies of the 1970 the year 1970 and we know, Ian, that there's a lot of Jallos come out in 70. And I'm going through my uh, list, and some of them... I, I, mm-hmm. There's a few in 70, but it didn't really hit its big boom until 71 and 72, I would say. Right. So going through my, my notes, I'm sitting here thinking, well, I can't really put that one in because it wasn't just enough horror for me. Because I'm with you on the Jallos. Sometimes it hits more of a mystery thriller than it hits on the horror realm. So I kind of... Yeah, I'm having to come out of my element a little bit because i'd have all jallos on my list <laughs> well you know what's funny is there were some movies on letterbox when i was on my letterbox page just looking up movies for 1970 for you know when i send my recordings into mm-hmm. you guys and everything like there were a couple that i thought were obvious horror movies and they weren't listed as horror like witch hammer was one of them mm-hmm. um and fragment of fear the movie with david hemmings i'm not sure if you heard of that one i haven't came across that in show prep that was another one that i thought this that i always considered that a horror movie but they didn't even have that listed as one in 1970 <laughs> <Go figure. laughs> i don't know how they just do it i mean it, it, for me and, and richard glenn glenn schmidt we love richard schmidt and he would be notorious for this brad hoagie uh when they get into because they're so into jalo as well right because i mean they yeah. have a podcast on it for crying out loud so the thing is with them they may look at things a little different than even i do uh but at the same time even i don't know how to say it like they hit the element sometimes but the mystery is a little more uh uh, prevalent than the the horror so they kind of go off the realm a little bit uh some of them do though i will say like there are uh, let me throw out a few examples i mean and get into Argento. Well, pretty much any Argento yeah. movie. It's going to hit in the horror realm, right? You're going to have the gore. You're going to have the different things that we think of in horror aspects. But you could get into some Umberto Lindsay. You can get into some th- films that may not quite hit there. Even Sergio has a couple, man, that might hit off the edge. Uh, but um, mo- I, th- I would say most of Martino's. I mean, Torso, Torso uh, that's basically a slasher movie before mm-hmm. a slasher movie was a thing. Your Vice is a locked room, definitely has a gothic horror feel. All the Colors of the Dark has a psychological. But then you get into, like, Suspicious Death of a Minor, which is basically a comedy. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it has some horror elements, but it's it's also got a lot of comedic elements to it. Mm -hmm. That would be one Jay of the Day would be like, no, that's not horror. (laughs) 
would. Uh, no, he would. He would not. Um, yeah. Him and him and Bill Shetty would uh, would really object to that. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. That's what I love. Bill about Shetty, because it's funny. Like, listen, I used to listen to like podcasts with Bill Shetty, and he'd be like, he, the movie, like he would he he talked about how the lighthouse wasn't even a horror movie to him. So <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny how certain people have different classifications. I guess. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you because I mean that's straight up horror to me. I love lighthouse, uh, but no, I totally agree, and, that, and that's what it is. Like movies are subjective. It's what you know the eye of the beholder. And I, I appreciate that out of, of reviewers and different people. Like I get sometimes even people probably listen to me and think, Greg, what the fuck? But I mean, that's just because of the eyes that we're looking at. That's what we're going to talk about. The eyes of Laura Mars. It's yeah, looking through exactly. someone else's <laughs> eyes. It's what they see, right? <laughs> Not necessarily yeah. what everybody feels. Uh, what might be a great, you know, thematic movie to me might be a piece of shit to somebody else or a turd, you know? So it just, it happens. Skin of a rink. Just, I mean, how many people said Skin Rink was the worst movie last year? Like, a bunch, right? I haven't seen it, so I can't comment. Yeah, I mean, for me, it wasn't that bad. I was, like, actually pretty good with it. I think when I rated it over at Jay the Dead's horror movie podcast with the guys, I think I rated it high, but I think I was coming off of uh, Gilman Joel's uh, high rating. I was just like, yeah, let's do it, because I wanted to stick it to Jay one time. <laughs> that was still one of my favorite uh, conversations <laughs> that's ever been on that show. Other than, like, that's that's one of my favorites. I think my, my absolute uh, – well, uh, the Halloween Ends review that you guys all did oh, yeah. was great. <laughs> and then the um the uh, the whole saw retrospective was great and uh and dave z he made me laugh more than like he made me laugh so hard when he did the uh, he did his jigsaw impression at one point from uh, saw the final chapter and he's like you and your friends are racists and then that, that always made me laugh <laughs> I love those guys so much, and I'm busting Jay's balls like legit. He's he's such a good guy, man. Uh, anybody says anything negative about Jay, man, just needs to just quit following me because <laughs> I love that man so much. Uh, but I love to bust his balls a lot. But we're going to get into our episode. We've we've shitted around long enough. Uh, once again, double double twenty seven episode. 355 LOTC. Hope you're ready, listeners. Uh, once again, we're going to look at 1978's The Eyes of Laura Mars, and I'm going to play the trailer, and then we'll come back and let Ian break the plot down, and we'll we'll start talking about this puppy. So, uh, <laughs> here we go. breathtaking models and the beautiful people academy award winner faye dunaway is photographer laura mars her work the subject of controversy tommy lee jones is detective john neville intrigued by her photographs for his own reasons these are police photographs they are strictly our own material they were never published anywhere at all so my question is very simple. Why am I photographed so much like yours? That's right. Somewhere between the sensations of high fashion and the precise form of her art lies another dimension, unexplored, unexpected. Unwillingly, Laura Mars becomes a witness to a series of murders watching through the eyes of a killer. Eyes of Laura Mars. When it happens, I can't see 
What's in front of me? What I see is that. Think of that camera as the eyes of the killer. Drawn by a mystery. Do you understand? Their lives converge. Her world, sensual, dazzling, provocative. His world, demanding, dangerous, violent. This is incredible. In the midst of all of this, I, I can't stop thinking of you. I know, I know. But what, what is going on? I don't know. I mean, it's completely unprofessional of me to be walking with you in the woods, I'll well, tell you that. I don't that. have time for this. I... I'm supposed to be catching a killer. <laughs> well, I'm completely out of control. I saw him in the elevator, so I killed him in the elevator. Pursued by visions. She is linked to a killer. At any place, at any time, a witness. At any moment, a victim of her own eyes. go what a super long trailer <laughs> but uh love it love it love it so the eyes of laura mars ian what you got for this brother well so i uh i found a vhs box a rca columbia pictures home video uh, vhs box with a synopsis on it so i'll read that uh, th- this riveting tale of murder and suspense stars faye dunaway as laura mars new york's most controversial fashion photographer world-renowned for her sensational erotic portraits of models and settings of glorified urban violence laura mars exhibits a a mystifying psychic ability in her mind's eye as if through the lens of her camera she witnesses a series of bizarre murders with terrifying clarity all the victims are people laura has known police detective john neville played by tommy lee jones discovers a striking similarity between Laura's works and classified police photographs of the murders, and he attempts to unravel the events which have taken control of Laura's mind. The film builds to a spine-chilling climax when the eyes of Laura Mars reveals the identity of the killer. Boom. Love it. Uh, was this a first-time watch for you, Ian? Yes, it was. Um, I had heard of the movie before. I think I had. He- There's a podcast that I like and I think you have heard of called Giallo of the Month Club that I believe may have covered it. Yes. Um, it was a film that was talked about a lot. What's it called? Malignant came out as a comparison uh, to that film or a possible inspiration as well. Um, so so I had heard of it before. Um, one thing that really surprised me, and I, and I like Faye Dunaway as an actress, and I like the whole cast of this movie, not just her, but Tommy Lee Jones, seeing him as you know, when he was younger was really surprising to me. Um, cause I, you know, you think of Tommy Lee Jones and you don't really think of him till he got his big break when he was a bit older as an actor, right? He kind mm. of, 
when he started working with Andrew Davis, that was kind of the time he got his big break. Like he played the villain in Under Siege, and then he ended up being in The Fugitive, which is really his big career break. And really, his whole career has either been he plays really gruff authority figures or he plays really quirky villains. Uh, Batman Forever and Blown Away being the best example of that. And then this is him as a younger guy playing one of those gruff authority figures. And I thought, well, watching this, you know, uh, I'm not a woman, so I can't really speak on this. But I thought Tommy Lee's looking pretty good in this movie, (laughs) at least to me. Yeah, he totally had long hair going. Well, not long, but longer hair going. Damper looking. He definitely had that gruff look about him. So, yeah, I mean, I could see how women would be like, yeah, he's he's pretty smoking hot in this one. <laughs> so, well, Pearl's looking at me kind of weird. Like, yeah, right. But I mean, as, as a as a as a movie aspect, I think you know, girls would be like, yeah, he's pretty hot. No, <laughs> he's not getting it. <laughs> we'll move on. <laughs> so, so, no Tommy Lee love over here for Pearl. Nobody can be John Travolta love. Uh, whatever. <laughs> Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was. And, and even the rest of the cast, I mean, um, Rene Aubergeonbois, I think you say mm-hmm. pronounce his name as uh, her manager. I'd seen him in other movies. Most notably, he played the uh, the priest in uh, The Patriot, the Revolutionary War movie. It's what I think of him from. And of course, Brad Dorif, the great one of the greatest character actors probably ever Um this was, you know, just a couple of years after he got nominated for an Oscar for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And he's playing the the uh, shady chauffeur driver, uh, to say the least. And Raul Julia, um, Darlan Flugel, who plays one of the models, the one with like the really curly blonde hair. I remember her from Once Upon a Time in America. So it was nice to see all these people uh, that I knew. Uh, this movie, I will say, like, I like this movie. I'll be kind of upfront with this, but I did not love it. Um, I think Irvin Kirshner talked about how he didn't really want to show as much of the violence. And I almost think in retrospect, I think maybe around the time that may have been a good idea. But now I wish he would have shown more. And also, I think this movie, you know, the, the premise being, you know, how she can see murders through her eyes. The problem is there's not really there's yes, there's a mystery with who the killer is and why she's seeing this stuff. But there's not much of a mystery in terms of who is getting killed and what happens. Like every single time she sees a uh, a vision, uh, it you know that person ends up getting killed, and there's nothing she can do to stop it. You know exactly who is going to get killed and pretty much how. So it becomes a little bit of a of a predictable pattern. And I think there's not enough mystery and there's not enough drama with her being possibly able to stop this stuff from happening. That's what you would think a movie would normally like this do. Would, there would be some kind of thing where she sees the vision and she has enough time to stop one of them from happening or interview, and that really never happens. So that's that's one of the issues I had with it. Um, from a character perspective, um, I found the characters likable, not necessarily lovable. And the second time I watched the movie with the commentary on, there were little things I picked up on that I liked a little bit more uh, than the first time. But I think Kirshner is trying to do a movie more about character rather than uh, about mystery and about the the, the violent uh, set pieces. And he's trying to really do a character, where uh, a movie about her, Laura Mars, sort of unraveling and what she's going through on a dramatic level. And in a way, it's it's more of a romance movie than it is um, like a mystery in some ways. And that's it's it's okay to do that. But I wish the other elements had been done a little bit better. Yeah, I think I, I get the aspect what you're talking about with the uh, fact that she couldn't do anything about the murders because she was basically looking 
her visions would come real time. Like it wasn't like in the future, like when she's watching, it's actually physically happening, right? So she would not have time to actually, you know, call the police and say, hey, this is going to happen. You need to go get to so-and-so's house now. You know, you didn't have that, that element. And she didn't know it at first, but we know it through the movie that it's happened in real time, how she's able to see it through the real time, you know, whatever, that's that's filmmaking. But I I see where you're going on that aspect. I totally do. For me, I thought the acting once, you know, first of all, is really good in this film. I thought Faye Dunaway done really great. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones, awesome. Of course, Brad Dourif, as you mentioned, man, he's such a legend. And he knows how to play certain characters. And he totally plays the, he's a chauffeur in this one, a driver. He just plays the character that they gave him so well in this movie. Like, you just feel he's a sleazy or was a sleazy type guy, maybe a little loose in the marbles type character. And then what ends up happening toward the end of this movie, he he nailed that. Uh, the the ladies are good in this movie. I just think it's like a really well-acted uh, movie. I thought Renee was really good as the agent. Uh, loved his character as well and, and some of the things that he does. So overall, and I mean, we got Irvin Kirshner, uh, who just two years later gave us The Empire Strikes Back, right? So, you know, he went from the eyes of Laura Mars and gives us The Empire Strikes Back. Like, what the heck? I will say, I don't know. I, I don't want to say anybody could have directed The Empire Strikes Back. I'm not going <laughs> to sit here. Like, he, but, he deserves credit for for overseeing it yeah i don't want to sit here and say that he like was a true visionary behind Mm -hmm. that because that's all from lucas's mind he just he just executes that that vision but that's that's you know it's he did a good job doing it let's just say that i mean i think he's a pretty decent (laughs) film director i mean he did never say never again which is the you know the non-official james bond movie sort of that i actually really like i think Mm -hmm. that's a fun movie um and he did uh, RoboCop 2, which is a pretty good sequel. Um, so he's he's a decent film director. And this is he's almost he's almost like a journeyman. Like he's the type of guy who will direct something that's already has a script and stuff like that. Like, and in this case, it, it did. This was written by John Carpenter and someone mm-hmm. else, I believe. And he just, you know, he he executed the, the screenplay. Yeah, it's interesting to look at that, too, because uh, the story by John Carpenter and then it was screenplay by David Zellig Goodman and John Carpenter. So how much of this um, that eventually came out on the screen, uh, you could see a lot of John Carpenter in it as well. You know, you definitely can with the suspense level and the different things. You can definitely feel John's influence in it. Um, I, I felt like other than I want to say it almost felt like a, a uh, someone's watching watching me type movie that John Carpenter did. Uh, like a made-for-TV movie, but then we ended up getting the the nudity, which you would not have, and you got a little bit of gore in this one. So, you know, it, it pulled back a little bit, but for a portion of this movie, it feels almost made-for-TV with major stars, even though I don't think Tommy Lee Jones, like you said, I don't think he was a star at the time. Uh, Faye Dun- Dunaway, I mean, of course, her name known. 78, what all has she had had out? I mean, I'm sure a lot by man. Cause well, she was forever. just coming off an Oscar win mm. for Network, which was basically a correction for her not getting the Oscar in Chinatown, which exactly. is amazing. And, and then about 10 years before this, she emerged as a star uh, because she was in Bonnie and Clyde. Mm-hmm. So by now, 78, you know, she's starting. How many more did she do? I was like, trying to find her film. I should have did this before. Uh, uh, let's see. Was the, so there she, was one pretty big film role she had after this that oh she did mommy dearest yeah she did mommy dearest which is not the movie you're talking about but i love mommy no dearest. i gotta look hold on a second I'll, I'll find it there was another movie that she was well known for mm-hmm. around this time but i 
Oh, Barfly. That mm-hmm. was the other big one that she got a lot of acclaim for. Yeah, and if you look at it, though, I think most of her career now she's winding. She ended up doing Supergirl, and uh, I have not seen Wait Until Spring, Bandini, Scorchers, any of these movies. So I've not seen a lot of the movies that she done afterwards. I would think that, you know, you get Faye Dunaway for her name for sure, so you get that. Uh, but I thought she'd done good in this. I thought she was believable in her character. Uh, you feel her kind of getting unraveled once these murders start taking place around her agency and the different things that she's doing. Um, I, I believed it. it was believable. Yeah. You know, this movie would make a good double feature with like a lot of, I mean, we haven't done the psychic on the show yet, but that would be one of them. Um, it would make a good double feature with the other one I was thinking about was actually delirium because it deals with, uh, you know, models and, and modeling agencies and, mm. and a woman trying to stop a, a killer involved with that. Oh yeah, totally. Maybe, you know, you listeners out there should do that. Maybe just throw them in there and watch them back to back, see where it goes. As far as the the set, I love that it took place on the streets. Like, we're in the streets. We're going through the the alleyways and different things. I loved that. I thought, it. you know, they hit the element there. Uh, definitely fall time with the trees and the different things that was going on through the movie. So it felt cold. It felt um, wintry. I guess is what you know the word I'm looking for. I like that aspect as well. So I thought they nailed that. I thought the the set pieces is great. Anytime you can put, you know, what was it, New York City. So if you're putting New York on the street and you're in it, man, I loved it. You can see some of the scenes where they're filming that you can see the they're clearly not you know paid actors. But you can see them just turn around and watching the camera, like yeah. You know, even see people smiling a little bit, you know, when it's a filming. But I love that they do that. I love that. You know, let's shut New York City down for a couple minutes and film and then be gone. And watching the reaction of people as they watch. Because I'd be the same way. I'd be turning around watching. You know, you see Tommy Lee Jones doing a full sprint down the road. You're like, what the hell is he doing? Kirshner, <laughs> um, Kirshner pointed out that uh, Tommy Lee Jones was the, the fastest runner he had ever photographed on film. Oh, wow. He looked um, fast. I don't know. I mean, he was definitely running through them streets pretty quick. Well, he did play football when he was at Harvard. So he's got oh, wow. that going for him. Well, there you go. Until he probably blew his knee out, right? That's what normally happens. Well, I don't know. I don't think I just, I mean, I just don't think he could ever make it to the NFL level. He played guard, which was really strange. I was like, Tommy Lee Jones was big enough to be an offensive lineman. But I guess <laughs> back then, I don't know. It was, that was, that was strange to read, but yeah, he was on, he was on some really good Harvard football teams back mm. then. <laughs> well, the acting in this, once again, actors are great. You even got, uh, well-known Raul Julia, Pearl's like Gomez. Uh, she, you know, we got Raul playing in this movie as the ex-husband. And uh, just the cast I thought was really good. I liked it. It's believable. The music is really good in this movie. Outstanding. I love the title track by Barbara Streisand, the Prisoner song. I thought that was great, man. I could listen to that on repeat. Shut up, all you metalheads cracking on me I right like now. I <laughs> like the song that plays like um, during that big bottling. Not the not the exhibit, but the the, the shoot. Um, what is it? Let's all chant. I think is what it is. Okay, basically sounds like a David Bowie song or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, yeah. That's that song totally. That whole scene looks like it could be in a Giallo film, actually. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And one thing I did love about it too, and I, I will say this: like I own the vinyl soundtrack. I actually found this at a. Uh, local like swap meet type place got it fairly cheap too 
Um, big fan of the soundtrack, but also the poster of this one, which is just Faye Dunaway's face kind of faded in a black and gray. And then you got those striking white eyes. And man, I told Pearl last night, I was like, that might be one of my favorite posters of any movie. Like something about it just really, I don't know, it's the eyes. I don't know what it is haunting about it, but I love that freaking poster. Simple as hell. You know, nothing more than just blacking something out and putting some white eyes on there and and putting eyes alarm. But whatever they did, it just looks, I love it. I absolutely love that freaking uh, poster. So great job on that one. Pearl's probably thinking, yeah, right. But I do. Uh, this was distributed by Columbia Pictures, 104 minutes long. Budget $7 million, box office $20 million, and I think a lot of that, once again, you know, Faye Dunaway, Tom Lee Jones, Brad Durf. I don't know if Brad Durf, well, I guess Brad would probably put some seat, you know, butts in seats, but Faye Dunaway's definitely putting some butts in the seats in the theater at the yeah. time. Uh, so, great, great this movie was a This movie was a pretty, it was a, it was definitely a moderate hit. Well, no, maybe even more than moderate. I mean, it's $7 million budget, $20 million box office. Mm-hmm. You'd probably translate that to about 80 or a hundred million today. That would be my guess. Yeah, probably. Roger yeah. Ebert gave it one and a half stars, criticizing it, saying it's called the film's cliched woman in trouble plot. Hey, Roger Ebert, two fingers up to you, buddy. And I'm not talking thumbs. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I don't Roger know Ebert. where he's getting that from because like, I mean, I guess you could call her a woman in peril, but she's not a helpless character in this. I think she's a pretty strong character for the most part. She's just trying to rationalize what she's going through. I mean, his he would have the same criticism of almost any Giallo movie, if that's the case, then, you mm-hmm. know? It's funny, George Lucas hired Kirshner after, for Empire Strikes Back, after seeing a rough cut of the film and being impressed. So that's how he came on for Empire Strikes Back. So there you go. And Mad Magazine. You, did you ever collect Mad Magazines? I know they, they weren't as popular. Uh, I've, you know. I've heard of them, but I've never, yeah. In our day, Mad Magazines was the bomb. Like, it was just everybody needed a Mad Magazine. You wanted the game. Uh, they had a board game. It was just all about Mad. Well, they did a parody. Uh, it says in 1979, and it's called The Eyes of Lurid Mess. Because uh, they always do those little spoos. Uh, so, I mean, this thing, I mean, it's got some buzz. Hey. So I remember, I don't remember, but I went through looking some show notes up and I was like, did I ever see this? So I go into my land of the creeps and sure enough, episode, let me get it down here. Um, All right. So way back on episode 21, which aired, uh, evidently I released this on February 27, 2013. So a long time ago, episode 21, uh, the crew back then, and this may have been Justin Bean's debut because we uh, welcome a special guest, Justin Bean. We did a Masters of Horror episode where we looked at John Carpenter, and we ended up reviewing at the time. Uh, we did Christine, we did Prince of Darkness, The Ward, and we also did Someone's Watching Me. And for some reason, only Doc and I, Dr. Shock and I, did The Eyes of Laura Mars. And our review was pretty rough. I'm going to be honest. Like, after watching it this time, this is going to be one of those Dave Z effects where re-watching a movie several years later sometimes can help. And this can definitely help. Because from what I rated it in episode 21, a 5 is way off. Dr. Shock gave it a 3.5. Really, I'd love to hear Dr. Shock rewatch this and hear his thoughts now. Uh, so anyway, so what else you got on this movie, uh, The Eyes of Laura Mars? Uh, just yeah. a couple of things. There's some shots I love, like that initial transition where it goes from the victim's eyes to Laura's eyes as she's waking up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you had that really great long shot, which reminded me of movies we've seen before. Like it reminded me of uh, there's a scene in um, the Red Queen kills seven times where a woman is going through like this big, big building. And there's this long shot throughout. It's that scene where Faye Dunaway is getting chased in that sort of abandoned building and you have that, that long shot. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's a great shot. And then that shot um, toward the end of the funeral where the doors just open up and you see the autumn leaves and everything. That was a great moment as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Kirshner definitely has an eye for the, for the photography, uh, I would say pretty well. I got to say his commentary was funny because Urban Kirshner has like a very deep voice. Like he sounds actually, he sounds a lot like Ray Romano. That's that he's almost a dead <laughs> ringer. Like the, their voices are very similar and he'll every once in a while, Kirshner would have some emphasis on something that was very funny. Like he'd, he'd be talking normally, then he'd put emphasis on something. And he did this a lot. Like it's a weird tick he has where he was like at the beginning, for example, he was talking about what he wanted to show with the movie. And he said something like these women will uh, model themselves and that'll damage both genders because men will think that the model is the ideal woman. And it's just, he's <laughs> very funny like that. It's funny. You said Ray Romano too, because that was just on TV just a little bit before we started recording. Oh, was watched, it? Yeah. always watched everyone loves Ray, but I love it. Uh, I love, I love some of those scenes you mentioned, especially that, that run down the uh, warehouse uh, corridor. Cause it was such a, a long open, shot with the background and everything it's just beautiful man i loved that and i did love the opening of the funeral when he hit those bright yellow leaves of the autumn and everything it's just a gorgeous yeah. shot and then i was gonna say too like brad dorif is like one of the people who i would want to see in a giallo the most and then i thought well wait a minute he was in a giallo like an actual attack he because he was in uh he was in trauma he had a small role in that oh shit as the as the doctor oh wow I'd go back. A freak, yeah, I mean, not the greatest movie, but he mm-hmm. has he has a great moment in that where he freaks out on the main character. Like the main <laughs> character is trying to get some information from him, and he's like, "I don't know anything. Leave me the fuck alone." <laughs> typical <laughs> Brad Dourif. Yeah, typical Brad Dourif yelling. Um, he just has that way, man. I'm swear, dude, I could watch him read the encyclopedia and probably be entertained as hell because he would make it sound fucking off the chain. I love it. I was just gonna say this doesn't have anything to do with the movie but and it obviously it may have been a while since you last watched it but you were talking about the john carpenter episode is the is the ward worth like a watch at all for me no i mean i i would say yes in the fact that it's john carpenter so yeah you'll certainly at least get but for me i just felt like it was the least john carpenter film i've ever seen like it was totally out of his character and I felt like, and and I've seen it twice, and both times I was let down. So I feel like he was maybe, I don't want to say he was looking for a paycheck, but we know through John Carpenter he looks for a paycheck doing movies, right? So he does it during the off-season of basketball because he got to watch his basketball, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. We know the John Carpenter story, most of us. Uh, but I just felt like it, it missed everything that made John Carpenter who he was. You know what I'm saying? Like, he could do whatever he wants, don't get me wrong. But, I mean, everything that makes John Carpenter films great, he kind of didn't do in that movie. And huh. maybe he was trying something different, but for me, it just never worked. Well, he went through a, a pretty quick, de- uh, you know, decline from the late 90s to the early mm-hmm. 2000s. But then his Masters of Horror episodes, I enjoy quite a bit. Oh, so, yeah, absolutely. No, The War yeah. just, it, it's, it's, I would say give it a watch. But I don't think it's going to be something that's going to be, 
you know, you're going to give that thing an eight or a nine or a 10 and be like, wow, that just blew Probably my socks not. off. You're going to hit it and say like, eh, it's, it's, it's okay. Right. I mean, but when you see a John Carpenter film, you're expecting, or at least I do, I expect a John Carpenter film. Right. I mean, I'm not saying it's got to be sci-fi. It's got to be this, but he just, there was nothing in that movie that thematically looked like John Carpenter film. Like, you know how he's able to do those wide pan angle shots or he does you know, these suspense levels or these different things. It, it didn't have any of that. Yeah. And I just, I don't know. It just threw me off, but uh, I would, I would warrant people. I would warn people this way. If you want to watch it, maybe watch it just cause it's John Carpenter and just say, Hey, I've watched all of John Carpenter's catalog. And that would be the only reason other than that. It's a forgettable uh, movie that, uh, you know, it, I, I'm never going to rewatch it unless I have to do it for an episode. That, that's my thought on it. And I've seen it twice now and too many times. Not that it's like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre part four for Dave. It's not like that. I mean, I could definitely find something enjoyable in the movie. It's just, it's a letdown. So why watch it? You know, so that, that's my thought. Give it a shot though. Ian, you might like it. I might eventually. Cool. Well, what else we got on eyes of llamas? I wanted to sing the sad I, my Madman Mars movie. I want to hear sing that song. I think I pretty much uh, <laughs> talked about everything I wanted to. All right. I mean, for me, it's it's a decent movie to good. I think the acting once again is strong. The music's great in it, and it does have a good jalo feel. It's, it's a mystery. You got the uh, few times where they're showing uh, scenes where you're looking through three different, maybe three, four potential killers in this one. So it's kind of a who done it and. Once the reveal, did you like the reveal without spoiling? Did it catch you by surprise? I thought it was predictable who it was, but why and how the reveal happens, I actually thought it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Same. And and I enjoyed that part of it. Actually, after rewatch, because this has been since 2013 since I've seen it, uh, Pearl was asking me, is this the killer? And I was like, yeah, and I thought it was. And then when that individual parishes i was like oh crap well maybe it's not that <laughs> so i totally forgot who the killer was after watching it eight what was that since 2013 a lot of years later uh 11 and i was like wow caught me by surprise so for me as a rating i actually like i said on 21 or whatever i gave it a five which is totally off it's an eight for me now and i actually really enjoy this film what are you giving it in i'm giving it a seven seven for ian eight for me uh this is available on i believe it was tubi and it is actually available on YouTube as well. Uh, pretty good cut. So if you want to watch it over there, you can do it. Uh, get the soundtrack if you can find it somewhere, man. That soundtrack's banging, man. It's a banger. Uh, I got it on vinyl cheap, used, and uh, I recommend it. Check it out. So with that said, Ian, it's time to get into our last review of the night. Uh, let's see here. I'll pull a trailer up. Uh, we're going to be doing a movie now called uh, from 2011, and this is a first-time watch for me, uh, and it is The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. So let's go to the trailer now. She's one of the best investigators I have. But? She's different. Uh, in what way? In every way. Something wrong with the report? Anything you chose not to disclose. He's clean, in my opinion. He's honest. Her credibility isn't dead yet. Mine is. He's had a long-standing sexual relationship with his co-editor of the magazine. Sometimes he pleasures her. Not often enough, in my opinion. No, you're right not to include that. I need your help. You come stay on the island. A way of avoiding all those people you might want to avoid right now. 
You will be investigating thieves, misers, bullies, the most detestable collection of people that you will ever meet. My family. This is Harriet. Someone in the family murdered Harriet. And for the past 40 years, has been trying to drive me insane. Also from her, and the rest from her killer. You failed to adapt to four foster homes. Arrested twice for intoxication, twice for assault. How many partners have you had in the last month? And how many of those were men? I should have control of my money. And you will, once you learn to be sociable. Why not we start with me? You know what to do. I can't find something you've been unable to find in 40 years. You don't know that. You have a very keen investigative mind. You were here that day. A terrible day. Searching. Not finding. I never found the body. Was it spontaneous? Was it calculated? Did she know something? Someone wish she didn't. The last time I reported on something without being absolutely sure, I lost my life saving. I need a research assistant. I know an excellent one. She did the background check on you. The what? You don't think we could hire just anyone for something like this? It's Mikhail Blomqvist. May I come in? We need to talk. Hey, hey, who do you think you are? Put some clothes on. Get rid of your girlfriend. Can I call you Elizabeth? I want you to help me catch a killer of women. I've got absolutely no idea of how they're connected to the death of a 16-year-old girl. Don't you need to look over these? I got it. It's better to look at what I am about to show you on an empty stomach. What are you doing? Reading your notes. They're encrypted. Please. Rape, torture, fire, animals, religion. Am I missing anything? The names. And they have some. Nobody likes people poking around in their lives. Everybody knows why you're here. Someone killed her. Someone on the island that day. If a woman approaches any beast and dies with it, you shall kill the woman and the beast. These people are insane. Soon you will know us all, only too well, with my apologies. the trailer i gotta say ian first time watch man i was impressed with this movie actually is it a great throw you know just blow your mind away movie not necessarily but i was really impressed with this one i, I was glad you chose it because i'd never seen it and uh i'll let you go ahead and give the plot and everything then we'll break it down but right off the bat i'll go ahead and spoil it a little bit i actually really enjoyed this one awesome i'm glad before i get to it like would do you think that it was like a worthy inclusion in the american giallo uh I actually, idea. I actually do because of where it goes. Like the the murder mystery is really strong in this one, and it, it takes forty years to figure this thing out, you know. But yeah. but uh, I love the aspect, and then the reveal at the end. You know what happens? That last climatic uh, battle, man, was strong. Like it's really good. So uh, no, this is out. You know, really, I don't want to call it outstanding, but I, it's almost an outstanding film. I mean, honestly. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then, we'll, then we'll, we'll break get it down. to more on that. Sure. In a second, but okay, so I have a premise now. Um, this is taken from IMDb. I'm gonna struggle with some of these Swedish pronunciations, so bear with me. 
Mikhail uh, Blumkvist is a disgraced journalist who was asked by a wealthy industrialist to write a bi- biography on his family. But what he really wants his Blumkvist to do is to find out what happened to his niece who went missing 40 years ago. At first, Blumkvist isn't interested until the man offers to help him clear his name. Blumkvist begins by talking to the man's relatives who were there when the girl went missing, but some of them are not forthcoming. Blumkvist eventually believes that her disappearance might have something to do with the serial killings that took place 20 years before she disappeared, so he asks for a research assistant. The industrialist man suggests Lisbeth Salander, a talented hacker who does background checks for them and who even did one on Blumkvist. When he sees her report, he's impressed and asks her to work with him, and she does. She's antisocial, but is extremely efficient. Love it. Like I said, this was a first-time watch for me. Uh, first thing is visually this movie is stunning. Like, it looks gorgeous. Love the set pieces in this one as well. This this has – both of these movies actually have hit that, that Italian giallo aspect where you your backdrop's just as important as the movie, right? So I love that they put us in these worlds and we kind of have to live in them. Uh, this one definitely did that. I think the musical score – uh, from Trent Reznor, of course, from Nine Inch Nails. I think this the score is amazing. Like, it's so kick-ass. Techno, rocky, just, just really good. And the acting, man. I mean, you got so many stars in this movie, or or I'm going to call them stars. Great, I mean, great ensemble cast yes. and, and two, I'd say, big stars. But even the character, like the, the, the minor supporting roles are all played by people who are great. Right. I mean, here's one, Christopher Plummer. I mean, hello. Yeah. And Daniel Craig, of course, we know him. Most of you will know him from uh, Bond movies now rooney mara who plays the lead actress did not know who she was till um, later looking the nightmare on elm street remake there you go did not yeah. realize that so i didn't yes, I just, she's the star of that which uh, you know i don't hate that movie i'm mm-hmm. more indifferent toward it i don't think it's her fault the movie's bad no. by any means i just don't think it was written particularly well i think even though i think that movie's okay i think it's the worst of like the major uh horror franchise remakes from around that time but it's not her fault the movie's bad by any means oh totally not totally not Stellan Skarsgård, you know, of course, we know Alexander and Bill Skarsgård. And then also, and the one that really struck out at me, because I was looking at him, I was like, God, where do I know this guy from? And I kept looking, just a little bit heavier weight, but if you remember the movie Beverly Hills Cops. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say Stephen Burkhardt. Yes, like I totally was looking at his face, and I'm like, God, I know oh. him. You know what's funny is the first time I watched this movie, I thought this guy's going to be a villain. Like I yeah. just I thought it instinctively because <laughs> he, because he was it. the villain in Beverly Hills yes. Cop. He was the villain in Octopussy, the James Bond movie. He played yep. the Russian general in that. Then he played the Russian colonel in Rambo First Blood Part Two. <laughs> so he was always playing villains in the 80s. And I'm like, there's no way this guy isn't a villain. Yeah. And, the sort of a non-spoiler spoiler he doesn't end up being a villain but it's right. it's very it was like one of those things where i thought this guy has to be a villain the second he's on screen but if you think then, about it the people that they put in this movie male actors are kind of villainy type people even well, with uh Skarsgård, i will say i gotta say like Skarsgård is so good at really straddling that fence like he's good at playing characters who are shady but on the surface he's like like really proper and really nice and he's he does that really well in ronin and other movies he's been in like i'd argue that his performance besides rooney maras is probably the best performance in this movie yeah um 
he's he's really good. And then um, Jolie Richardson, who some people would know from like Event Horizon, she plays Anita, the one of the uh, one of the younger uh, members of the of the Vonger family. And then I'm just trying to think of others because there are other people in small roles. Uh, Yorick von Wagenen, the Dutch actor who plays uh, Bjerman in this, who is absolutely disgusting character, mm-hmm. but his performance is good. I got to say, yeah, Julian Sands, who plays the young yeah. Henrik. Uh, rest in peace, Julian. Julian done great in this movie, and he's one that straddles. If you think about Warlock and different movies, like he has played villains in other movies, so you know you're straddling that fence with some of these characters. Yeah, I'm with you, and it's it's one of those things where this movie has so many different like the the mystery gets revealed in layers. I think in, mm-hmm. in a way, so it, you're almost looking at it like anybody could be a suspect, or what's 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 everybody's motivation here for what's going on like you you find out more about the characters as you go along and you don't really know like what the truth is or, or isn't in some cases with a lot of them and it, it focuses on that this family who has you know all these anti-semitic ties and a lot of them don't seem to like each other and it's one of these things where it takes almost more than one viewing for you to identify who each person in this family is and who doesn't or does like each other because it's not it's not always revealed in exposition, or if it is, it's very, very quick. Like Henrik mm. Henrik Vonger, the the Christopher Plummer character, gives like a a reveal about who each family member is at the very beginning. But it's almost like if you're not taking notes on it, you're gonna forget it pretty quickly. Absolutely, I think too. What helps us helps this movie. It's not a fast paced movie, so it's not like a, a uh, it's a thinking movie. Like there is some slow moments in this one. You could almost feel like you know if you wanted to compare it maybe to an A twenty four film. Like it has a great story along with some really good action sequences in this one, right? So you know this one has a good A twenty four ish feel, even though it's not. Uh, so heavy story driven. I thought the story was great. Like I absolutely uh, was into the story. Uh, there are some scenes in this one, like a rape scene that's really horrific uh, that was well done as a film aspect, but as a viewer was really hard to watch. Uh, but the revenge aspect of it was, you know, was just so satisfying. It was just so great. I loved it. Uh, I love, I love, love, love Rooney Mars character, man. She is such a punk ass, badass that uh, she kicks ass, dude. Like she straight up, knows her shit and you're not getting one over on her she she's thinking two steps ahead and there's a scene where she's on a motorcycle because that's what she drives and there's a scene where she's going through the city and she's trying to track down this this vehicle she's trying to pull a vehicle over you're not i know you know where i'm talking about toward the end of the movie yeah all right i've driven a motorcycle and i kept telling pearl i was like what is she going to do you're not going to do anything on a motorcycle to stop this vehicle other than crash yourself right you're going to probably die so I'm sitting there like, what is she doing? Like, is he, cause he's trying to like, cr- you know, wreck him off the road or whatever, make him stop. You're on a motorcycle. He's in like an SUV. It's not going to stop. <laughs> I'm just thinking in the movie aspect. I'm like, think with your head, girl, you're on a motorcycle. <laughs> it's not going to work. Uh, but still what she does ends up being great. So I don't know, man, just really dude. this, this movie really hit me on all aspects, man. It was really good. I love Daniel Craig's character. Yeah, he's not the best of of uh, stand up citizens, but 
you know, cause some of the things that he does do, but as far as in the movie, it's a great character and, and having both of them working together, I thought they had a good dynamic. So as a movie aspect, once you're watching it, their chemistry was really good. At least I thought so. They played off each other really well. And, uh, I yeah. loved that. I loved it. Loved I, well, it. what I kind of like about their relationship is mm-hmm. like he, um, he, he's like she's more in control in their relationship like she's yeah. more the dominant one <laughs> oh, in their yeah. relationship than he is he's kind of like there's a part there's a part of this movie where he gets grazed by a bullet and he mm. kind of for lack of a better way of saying it turns into a total pussy yeah <laughs> he gets hit by a bullet <laughs> like and he's like are you gonna sterilize that dental floss for when you like repent? he's like can't we just use tape and she just she i think she gets annoyed with him yeah and she like she she basically like propositions herself to him because she wants him to calm down yeah i think that's really what happens it's and that scene very is interesting very graphic like she just basically walks in rips her clothes off and just like you know basically just screw me like i was like what this sounds so out of out of nowhere but you know whatever. it is but i also think she a she's already has problems socializing to begin with yeah so like the way like and i think she's also damaged by what has happened to her like in the rape scenes and everything Mm. where she doesn't really know how to approach that the right way so it's kind of weird how there's a lot of different angles to that sequence and you know at its core this movie is this movie if i guess fundamentally could be considered a giallo but it's just as much of a movie about elizabeth uh, or lizbeth i should say and and mikhail like it's about them as characters but especially her and it's also building to a possible movie series that never happened because there are two books after this that never got adapted i don't exactly know what happened with that i can imagine that david fincher did not want to get tied down like it's one of those things where maybe it didn't develop quickly enough and all the parties involved were like hey we're gonna move on i don't i don't exactly know what happened but i imagine that could have been part of it you know the the big elephant in the room here that we haven't talked about is the fact that this is directed by one of the more well-known one of the more notable directors of the past 30 years i would say Mm -hmm. um you know, when David Fincher puts his name on a movie, it usually gets a lot of attention. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, I'm not the biggest fan of Fincher's films. Um, this is one of my favorites in particular. My biggest problem with Fincher's films is he's he's got a sense of nihilism to him that and, and his movies are very long that a lot of them I just don't find rewatchable. Um, that might be my problem. Like I've seen Zodiac once, don't really have an interest in ever watching it again seen fight club once don't really have an interest in ever watching it again gone girl seen once don't really have an interest in ever watching it again like there's a pattern there where i just don't really find his movies to be films that i'd ever revisit this is one i do like watching every once in a while because i think there are things about the mystery that i pick up each time like i'll forget exactly how they put it together and then i pick it up again Mm -hmm. uh each time i watch it like like all the different pictures they have to go through the the bible verse um bible verses being connected to certain murders the fact that you end it ends up being revealed that this killer has killed way more people than just the ones that are listed in the bible verses that this killer just kind of kept going because they like doing it so there are little things throughout and how they both put the mystery together is kind of interesting as well so there's a lot going on here and even like little things about the family that you pick up like about who is who and, and and what you you pick up i think a little bit more each time each time you watch it i mean as far as fincher goes 
I've only seen seven once. I could watch that movie again. Alien 3, specifically the assembly cut I love, which is a movie he disowns. The game I do like as well. It seems like the films he dislikes the most out of his filmography <laughs> are the ones I like because I like the game a lot and he doesn't. So yeah. it's interesting how like it could be one of those things where I like the films that he typically doesn't necessarily think are his best or the ones he likes the most. So mm. touche, I guess. <laughs> uh, we did recently watch Seven again and uh, it, it's good. It's, it's good. One thing I was thinking about in this movie, too, was the fact that Mara, you know, got the job. But I was looking at the casting who was in the running for her character, you know, the girl. Yeah, a huge list of people. Oh, my God. I mean, you got Eva Green, Scarlett Johansson, Kira Knightley. Eva Green would have been good. Eva would have been. Kira Knightley, Jennifer Lawrence. You got Natalie Portman. Uh, most of these I'm looking at, I'm thinking Emma Watson. I'm looking through and I'm like, I think they actually picked the right person. They did. I think that if you look at at the list of people mm -hmm. and like a lot of them are too, I don't want to say they're too pretty, but it's something like that where they don't, I don't think the, they, they would quite have the attitude that would work. Um, a lot of like, um, they said it came down to a few different people. Uh, Sarah Snook was one of them who she would have been really good. Um, if anybody has seen the movie or heard of the movie Predestination, she's really, really good in that. And mm. she would have been a good choice. But a lot of the people on this list, even Kristen Stewart, I don't know if that would have worked that well either. Leah Sado would have worked. Um, that would have been one that would have been OK. But a lot of them on here are just popular actresses from the time. Yeah. And I think that they wouldn't have quite been right for this role. Well, and honestly, I don't know that some of these characters either, because there's one uh, the rape scene, especially, and then if you look at the the one major sex scene in this movie, right? There's some pretty hardcore nudity going on on some of those scenes. You would have not had a a Scarlett Johansson at the time or Anne Hathaway or anybody do that. So those aspects would have been took out of that, right? You would have either body doubled or you would have not had that in there at all. And Scarlett might have done it. I mean, she ended up doing something something Later like that on, yeah, under the skin. So yeah, she yeah. might have been okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Like, so Fincher's commentary was like amazing. Like there's like a huge documentary making of on the Blu-ray that I didn't get to see too much of, but his commentary gave me just as much. Like he's pointing out all these little things that, you know, like I wouldn't even think of. He's not just doing your typical director, like what's his name? Uh, William Friedkin is notorious for this in his commentaries where he'll just say what's going on in the scene and not really give you much. Um, but Fincher was like pointing out how many takes he had to do all these different things. Like he's pointing out what's CGI, what's not. He's pointing out what he, what he thought of when he made the scene. Like for example, when, when, uh, Blumkvist is, is first, uh, you know, being uh, driven to meet, uh, Henrik. Um, he was saying that, you know, Harker meeting Dracula was something he was always, Fincher was always fascinated with. And that was one of his influences for the way he did that scene. But, you know, there's that scene where him and Martin are having dinner. Henrik, the first time he goes to see Martin at his house, and he said it was done in so many takes that uh, Daniel Craig had eaten off of like 14 different porterhouse steaks by the time they were done filming that scene. Like it's little things like that that he points out that I find uh, really interesting. And there was there was more. I mean, I have a huge list of notes that I could go over, but he also added in like even um, that for that for the sex scene um, where. Uh, uh, Rooney Mara is completely, you know, naked. He said, 
Rooney Mara like had a specific like pubic hair Merkin made because she said, oh, like he said, whatever you have to do to be comfortable. She said, oh, in the book, Lisbeth's Lisbeth's natural hair color is red and she dyes it black. So I'm going to have like a red Merkin made for me, like all these different things that he could point out about the movie were really fascinating. Um, The scene where um, where uh, Mikhail goes to meet with Harold, which is an interesting scene, he said, Originally, I thought Harold would be a more like menacing figure, like the way he looked. And he said the actor I got wasn't exactly that menacing. But what is menacing about him is how open he is with his anti-Semitic past, how he seems to embrace it more than Hmm. denigrate it. So, you know, there were interesting things about Fincher's (laughs) commentary that I would recommend to people. I'd love to check it out. Um, This one was a nominee. Uh, this one was nominated for some awards uh, back in the day, so it did not win. Like uh, Rooney Mara was nominated for Best Actress for the Academy. Meryl Streep, I was looking up. Meryl Streep ended up getting Best Actress that year for the Iron uh, Lady. For the Iron Lady, yeah. yeah, for her. Like I think she played Margaret Thatcher or something. Mm-hmm. I mean that that might have been the the true winner. I've never seen that film. Mm-hmm. What I'm surprised about a little bit, I actually think Skarsgård could have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I mean, to me, Agreed. he's that good in this film. I agree. He's great. He's really good. So overall, I mean, the cast is great. The film looks great. The action is really good in this movie. The mystery is good in this movie. The reveal at the end is outstanding. Like, totally kind of took me off guard because you don't, the way they keep it going, you're kind of in going back and forth in your mind. Who would it be? Cause it's 40 years later. So it could be any of these people. I thought they'd done good the musical score. Once again, you know, pretty much nine inch nail score uh, was great. There's not much negative in this movie at all. I don't even know anything that I could really say. The time of the movie is not really... It was, what, 100 and... Oh, I'm sorry, 2 hours and 38 minutes. I'm sorry. Duh. It is a long film. It is a long um, film, but I didn't but it's, feel it's, like it. Like I explained earlier, it's just as much of a character story, and it's also... You can tell that they're trying to set up things mm. for the next films, and that's one of the things that ages kind of... I I wouldn't say badly because it in a way it kind of ages well because it makes the film like a really complete film, but it's 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 definitely there in plain sight of like they're trying to set up what kind of what comes next and it it just never really well, uh, came to be. Well, yeah, because that final scene you know definitely left it with I told her I was like wow and then you know I was almost let down I'm like ah oh, you're going to end it like that like ah and now it's well X amount of years and later. it's interesting because that final scene and, and and Fincher talked about this in this commentary like Lisbeth goes to see him and he says oh I'm hanging out with my daughter later mm-hmm. and that's not really a lie he just didn't necessarily tell her the whole truth that he was going to be hanging out with his daughter with Erica and mm-hmm. that was and this isn't really a spoiler for like the main story like the the way this movie ends really doesn't have anything to do with the giallo side of the story I guess but like it really it, it ends with like Lisbeth kind of looking a little like heartbroken like I think she sees she sees Bloomquist with Erica and she thinks, well, I'm never going to be that woman for him, you know, like, or, or maybe she thinks, well, I'm never going to have him to myself. Like he's always going to be able to come back to Erica anytime he wants. Right. Right. It is. I would like to see another movie, man. Cause I, I think it warrants another one, but now it's, 
X amount of years later. I, I don't know if we'll ever get one. Probably. Well, so what's weird is so obviously there's you can if you want to continue this story, obviously the that, you know, you have the three Swedish films, which I would say are all pretty good films. Actually, I have seen all three of them. The third one's probably my least favorite. The second one I actually do like quite a bit, but they did make an adaptation of the fourth book. Uh, weirdly enough, like a few years ago with different actors and they almost continue it from the first film. Like they almost skip the, the second and third book and go right to that. And I've actually never seen the movie. So I don't know if that's entirely correct. Fide Alvarez was the one who directed it and oh, wow. it did not get a very good reception kind of can understand why. Cause it, it seems like it was a movie that was lingering in development for a long time. And they just decided to go with the fourth story because they thought it may have been the most convenient. I don't know. Um, Claire Foy was the one who played um, Lisbeth. I don't remember who played Mikhail in that ad, in that movie at all. But it was one of the few Fide Alvarez movies that I just wasn't that interested in seeing, mostly because it got ripped apart when it came out by the critics. But mm-hmm. Well, what was the... Uh, I'm looking up his movie. What was the name of the movie? Well, it would have been The Girl something or other. The Girl in the Spider's uh, Web? Yes. I got you. Okay, so... I've never seen it, so I was just curious. And and here's the thing: like I've never seen the Swedish movie. So is the first Swedish movie, The Girl with Dragon Tattoo, is this pretty much a shot for shot remake, or did they change some um, stuff up? It has a lot of the same moments. There are things that are different. Actually, it's funny. Fincher pointed things out in the commentary too. Like he kind of wanted to. I don't necessarily know if he wanted to upstage it, but the scene where um, Lizbeth, like, you know, basically throws up or whatever, he said he wanted, that That was a moment he upstaged, because in the in the Swedish version, Lizbeth, uh, played by Numi Rapace in that version, just puts, like, a bunch of soap in her mouth. Mm-hmm. And then Fincher was like, I wanted to have her look at the soap, but then actually have her physically gag herself to, like, upstage that moment, do something different. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, but Numi Rapace is a good Lizbeth as well. I don't know if she's quite as good as Rooney Mara, but I almost think that uh, Michael Nevequist, and I like Daniel Craig a lot, don't get me wrong, was mm-hmm. a better choice for um, Mikhail Bloomquist. I think he he's more of what I think of when I think of that character, just a little bit more than Daniel Craig. Fair enough. Uh, you got anything else on the girl with the dragon tattoo? Not necessarily. I mean, I just love like this. I think this film may have won the Oscar for best editing and I can see why. Like there's that mm-hmm. scene, right? Like, I think it happens like right after the rape scene where, or right no, Right. So there's a scene where Daniel Craig is doing research. Then the, then the camera goes like into the couch and then back to Lisbeth right after that scene had happened. And it's like a really cool transition. You got that really cool long shot outside of Martin's house, like mm-hmm. that where you see like the full view of his whole house. I think you know you might know what shot I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So there's like there's a lot of good moments like that. And it's it is you know, it's just one of those things where you see how good of a filmmaker David Fincher is. Like he really puts it on full display for this movie. And this movie had a $90 million budget, which is a lot. <laughs> Insane. And I think a lot of it came from, cause Fincher said they had to, for like a lot of the, the, like the, the pictures of like the crime scenes, like they had to make actual pictures, the flashbacks, they did a lot of these different colors. So there's a lot of, um, I would say digital effects going on that are pretty subtle, but they're all there. And I imagine that's what costs them the most money. Like even the snow, I think is a lot of it is digital effects. Oh, wow. 
Uh, so well done, man. This one, I, I'm so thankful that you picked it. Now I'm going to go back and search out the Swedish versions and just check those movies out as well. Just because I, I really enjoyed this story so much that I'd like to see it played out in two, three movies and to see. So, Pearl, Spiderweb one, you're talking about the one. You're doing, you're, yeah, she's talking about the Fede Alvarez one. Uh, the Swedish version ones, which would be, are they called the girl? I guess it's, like I said, I'm illiterate to the girl dragon tattoo altogether. So, well, uh, so what happened was from the research I had done, the original offer made the first three and he like died like almost right after he wrote the third one or something like he died in 2005. Mm. So what happened was this, I don't exactly know if this is a Swedish thing, like how, character rights go but then another author got the character rights for three more books then another author has it now for a few more books so the girl uh the 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 girl in the spider's web was actually done by a different writer years later mm. yeah i was just looking that up too yeah we'll check that one out too but i, I definitely want to watch the swedish ones um is that yeah. the, that's called the stag larson trilogy yeah that... yeah it's called the millennium trilogy i think okay, I that's you. the uh the magazine that he works for Okay, there it is. The girl with the dragon tattoo, the girl who played with fire, and the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. Yeah. Um, there is a triple uh, release of this. So you get all three movie Blu-ray on Amazon for fifty nine ninety five. Probably get it cheaper on eBay, but I'll, I'll search it out. I would assume. Streaming somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's pass. Um, yeah, what you got? I just had a couple other cool sure. casting connections. Yorick okay. um, von Wagenen, um, who plays Bjerman, um, people might recognize him from the end of Escape Room, where he played like the game master at the end of that movie. Oh, nice. And then it's a very small part, but I and I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Embeth uh, Davitz. Um, she was the she played uh, Mikhail's sister. She's like the lawyer. You see her, I think, in one scene. She's the one who played Sheila in Army of Darkness. Okay, I just read too. I didn't read this until just a second ago. But uh, the lead character, you know, of course, the guy character, Daryl uh, Daniel Craig. Did you see who he was up against? Makes who sense. He was up against for the role. Yeah, it, it makes I didn't sense. Know I don't know if I saw anything on Wikipedia for it. If you're looking at IMDb, that might make sense. Yeah, I can't. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. Yeah. George, George Clooney, Clooney. Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. Viggo Mortensen. And Brad Pitt. I mean, it makes sense that that was all the heavy hitters at the time. Vigo, Vigo would have been the best choice. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Him, absolutely. I think. Yeah. Yeah. That, out of all of them, that's the only one that struck out would have been Daniel Craig or Vigo. I, I just think Brad Pitt, no. Johnny Depp, definitely not. George Clooney. But, you know, it's been done. I I, I would have not dug it's George It's one Clooney of those out. things where John George Clooney and Johnny Depp have played roles like that before. Yeah. Before. Brad Pitt's a little bit too – He's he, I wouldn't say he's too clean cut, but, like, I'm expecting, like, the, the Cliff Booth of his personality to come mm -hmm. out. It's like one of these things where Daniel Craig – is a good enough actor to play a character like this that's vulnerable, and I don't necessarily think James Bond's going to show up. No, nope. you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man, nice. Well, let's pass around the ratings on this one, Ian. What you got for uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo? Uh, I'm going to give it an eight and a half. I think if you if there was like ever like a fan edit of this movie where it was like just the sort of giallo story to the movie and even cutting out some of the things that were 
like the things that you know are leading into the next movie. Like I would love to see an edit like that. And it's possible. I could give that a higher rating. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that that stuff within the film is bad. It's just, it's two hours and 38 minutes and you could have a version that doesn't necessarily have to be that long. And Fincher's movies are long winded uh, to begin with. So that's the thing he just always does. But Mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, an eight and a half. Okay. I'm eight and a half as well. And I, once again, this is my first time viewing. I will definitely watch this again. Uh, I would own this one. This is one that I think, Pearl, I think you would watch again as well. Four time. Okay, she's already seen it four times. So, yeah, <laughs> I guess that answers the question. I had to buy this movie, so I have it in our, in our catalog. So, once again, Ian, bang up for uh, nominating this one for the viewing because it would have been one that I would have not seen. So, I'm glad you chose it. So, uh, let's go ahead and give the listeners a teaser of the next episode, Ian. So now I'm now I'm already confused. Which ones are recovering first? Um, <laughs> so the bloods. Okay, so we're going to be doing a director's spotlight on Duccio Tassari, who we did talk about a little bit already when we did the first Pistol for Ringo. Mm-hmm. But we're going to be talking about his, a couple of his Giallo films and some other genre films he did. Um, so we're back to our Italian genre cinema. Uh, coverage uh so we're going to be doing the bloodstained butterfly which is uh one of his giallo movies and then we're going to be doing the return of ringo which is the second uh second in the ringo series which is cool i've already seen that one so <laughs> i'll do another yeah. rewatch that's awesome uh so bloodstained butterfly as well as return of ringo uh and that is to sorry's uh spotlight we're going to do and then we'll do another one after that episode so it's going to be awesome and i cannot wait uh getting into some more of those spaghetti westerns as well and uh man i can't wait to get into some of those too yeah you've opened up my whole world buddy uh with some different type of italian films so we hope that you've enjoyed this episode enjoyed this one ian thank you so much once again the eyes of laura mars as well as the girl with the dragon tattoo so stay tuned as pearl and i We'll be doing our Mortis Vision. We're going to be looking at Rose Red, the TV miniseries. Cannot wait to talk about that one. So until next time, what you got for closing with this one, Ian? Uh, you can find me at Urzonomics on uh, Twitter or X on, and, and uh, Instagram. And uh, you can add me on Facebook if you want. You can type my name in on Letterboxd and add me on there. Uh, that's, that's about it. Awesome. Check them out. Uh, check out his blog spot, all these different stuff. Uh, love Ian as myself wait till the end of the episode and you'll hear all my plugs and outros so until next time like we always like to say get your jelly on <laughs> LOTC presents Mortis Vision with Gregor Mortis and the Twisted Temptress. Welcome to Mortis Vision with the Mortises. I'm your host, Greg Mortis, along with... The Twisted Temptress. That's right. The love of my life. Pearl, what's up, babe? Um, wrestling. Wrestling, yep. AEW's on right now. <laughs> yeah. That's exciting, right? No, because Edge didn't come out. Edge did not come out. Pearl is very disappointed. <laughs> I am. <laughs> so, Adam Copeland come out next time that's true that's right we gotta say adam copeland he's not edge no more they always be edge no he's he's adam copeland rated the R rated r superstar, superstar. <laughs> <laughs> but we're here to talk some uh we're talking horror taking off from the television series again once again although we are kind of doing a television series right a mini 
it's a mini series tonight. So uh, we had just released the LOTC episode recently with the Stephen King. So to piggyback off that love, we decided that we were going to do a mini series from the great Stephen King, and it is Rose Red. That's right, Rose Red. So this is Double Double Twenty Seven LOTC Three Fifty Five. Hope you enjoyed Black Glove Mysteries with Ian and I. But now we're here. And we're going to be talking once again the mini series called Rose Red from Stephen King. Uh, actually, on the book of this as well. Here's like his books were so good. Like they're really good, but super detailed, super thick. And I think with Rose Red Love, I think what we got was what Stephen King likes in his wheelhouse is a mini series or a series because he's able to put so much in it instead of a movie that's only an hour and a half, hour and 40. He needs you know, a proper mini series or something with his books, right? Yeah. So I know he was very pleased when it came to this, that ABC rolled the dice with him and gave him the opportunity to do this mini series. It originally aired on January 27th, 2002. Uh, it ran for three nights consecutive, back to back to back, and uh, with a viewership of over 18.5 million people. Mm-hmm. Pretty decent. Pretty that was decent, one right? of them. <laughs> you was? <laughs> it seems like I may have watched at least one of the episodes. I don't know if I watched all three of them. I, honestly, I don't remember. I, I seem like I caught part of it, but like a lot of Stephen King stuff back in the day that was miniseries, especially in that time frame, I was kind of in and out everywhere, so I didn't really sit down and watch a lot of TV back to back. So I know I didn't watch all three of them. But I have since watched it a few times. So what we're going to do tonight, listeners, is we're going to play a trailer. And this is not even a trailer. I found the TV spot for ABC where it originally aired. And I thought it was pretty dang cool, uh, Pearl. So I think that's what we're going to do. We'll play the uh, TV spot and see if you guys love this trip down memory lane from 2002. So let's roll that and then we'll come back and break this puppy down. Stephen King, the modern master of suspense. There are rumors that you're planning a scientific investigation of Rose Red this summer. Is that true? An ABC world premiere event. I am extremely interested in Rose Red. Dr. Joyce Reardon has an obsession. Some houses are born bad. Houses like Rose Red. Now, after years of investigation... Annie Wheaton is a searchlight. If anyone can wake up Rose Red, she is the one. She has found the key. Are you holding the doors and windows closed? That will unlock the secrets. We shouldn't be here. Living inside Rose Red. Help us or die. Rose Red won't let you have what you want, Joyce. It won't let anyone have what they want. King's Rose Red, Sunday, January 27th, 9, 8 central on EBC. Viewer discretion advised. I love the fact that it had the uh, ABC, you know, premiere. Yeah. those. I'm a geek, man. I'm, I'm a nerd. <laughs> and stuff like that excites me when I see that. Like, especially back in the day on cartoon uh, mornings, like Saturday morning cartoons, or, or when they used to do the uh, Saturday night matinees and different things. Just all those different things. Uh, promo things i i'm a geek like it i love it uh so i hope y'all enjoyed that as much as i enjoyed playing it <laughs> um but here it is it's rose red uh we do spoil everything so if you have not seen rose red and you don't want to be spoiled go ahead and watch the three-part mini series so you don't uh 
end up hating this because we give away a lot of plot points and and spoilers so i'm letting you know that up front watch it first if you don't like spoilers right love yeah uh what we're going to do is we'll break this thing down uh i think the first thing we'll go to pearl and then i'll let you uh take over is the director of this which is craig r baxley now craig r baxley i was looking him up love mm-hmm. didn't do a lot of directing movie wise he no. did action jackson some of us know that some don't but action jackson jackson was his debut he did I Come in Peace in 1990, Stone Cold 1991, and Sniper 2 2002. But he did do some TV stuff. And one of them you were watching when I came home from lunch today was <laughs> 1999, Storm of the Century. Absolutely love that TV series and or miniseries. And he directed that one. He also did the follow-up, which I think was actually the prequel to Rose Red, which was the Diary of Ellen Rimbauer from 2003. Mm-hmm. He also did 2004's Kingdom Hospital uh, and The Triangle and The Lost Room. And uh, he also did some television credits that says Family Torn Apart, Twisted Desire, Silence and Mary, and uh, both star Melissa Joan Hart. So, anyways, that's the director. So, Pearl, let's break it down. Uh, once again, we're looking at Rose Red. So, what is Rose Red about first? And then we'll start going into the plots. Do the synopsis. Sure. <laughs> A college professor and a team of psychic investigate an old abandoned house at the request of the man who has inherited. Hoping to get some answers and of the mysterious death and disappearance of the property, the psychics stay at the mansion, but unleash a terrifying force that threatens to destroy them all. Dum 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 dum. Dum dum dum. So you said you watched this when it originally aired. Mm-hmm. Okay, so back in two thousand two you were at glued to the tube watching this do you remember what it was like watching it or do you just know that you watched it no i remember what it was like because i was intrigued uh, uh, you know i wanted to see who were the psychics I, w- I wanted to see the little girl who was supposed to have gifts and and most of all i wanted to see that mansion <laughs> yeah which is really cool very 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 now it was <laughs> supposed to be originally it started filming in california but they moved it to uh seattle Mm-hmm. I think in Washington, actually. Um, so we got the the house, castle, whatever you want to call it, was in Washington mm-hmm. uh, during the filming of it. And I think, how long were they there? They were there for like six months, I think. Uh, if I read right somewhere, I think it was six months uh, shot that they did. Yeah. Uh, which is a pretty, pretty good long time, you know, as far as when you start looking at shows and stuff, man. That's, that's a long time to have a set set up. But anyways, uh, so what do we got here? Actors, actresses, that type deal. What what do we got going on with Rose Red? Well, with Rose Red, we have uh, Kimberly J. Brown, who plays Annie Wheaton. Mm-hmm. We got Nancy Travis, Dr. Joyce Reardon. We got the late Julian Sands, who plays Nick Hardaway. Emily DeChanel, who plays Pam Asbury. Matt Kiesler, who plays Stephen Rimbauer. Matt Ross, who plays Emery Walters. Judith Ivey, who plays Kathy Kramer. Melanie Linsky, who plays Rachel Wheaton. Julia Campbell, who plays Ellen Rumbauer. I hope I say this one right. Tissadali Leloka, who plays Sukina. Jimmy Simpson, who plays Kevin Bollinger. And Kevin Ty, who plays Victor Kandolinsky. Nice. Good cast. Yes, I gotta say, cast. especially when you start looking down the line, and uh, like Nancy Travis, or not Nancy, is it Nancy? Yeah, Nancy Travis. Nancy Travis, 
I knew from uh, the show, if you know the the show with uh, Tim Tim Allen. Home Improvement. No, not t- Home oh. Improvement. It was the newer one he had. The uh, last front, what was it called? The uh, Anyway, it's a new, well, newer series, not a new series. It's been around a little while. But it is a TV series and it has Tim Allen in Last Man Standing. There you oh, go, Last okay. Man Standing. And I knew her from that. Yeah, because other than that, I didn't really know who she was, but she was recognizable now. Back then, you wouldn't have known her because that wasn't part of the show. Uh, but Julian <laughs> Sands, man, oh my God, as soon as I saw Julian Sands, I was super excited because I always loved seeing him in anything, yeah. right? That dude could just act out any part he was ever given. And then Melanie Linsky. Melanie Linsky, I know from Two and a Half Men, <laughs> yeah. the crazy neighbor that always had the hots for Charlie, right? Yep. was always after Charlie. Uh, so those were the main characters I knew. Now, some of the others I also knew, you know, through time. Uh, but those were the main ones that really kicked me. But uh, So what do we got when we start opening up? How does this open up the first series here? Because this broke down in three nights. Yeah. So clearly there's there's different episodes and whatnot. So how does it start out? Well, chapter one starts off in Seattle, 1991. See two people arguing, that, which happened to be the parents of... Annie Wheaton. Mm. They're arguing because the mother is terrified of her daughter. The father doesn't want anything to do with her, but he, you know, he's always on on a rage of panic because she's always, um, from what they say, she is autistic, but she is also a girl with telepathic powers. Mm -hmm. She's very tune with them i i would say her sister um rachel is the only one who who has the patience and kind of acts like the mother you know communicates mm-hmm. with her she she she's able to kind of calm her down and everything we we're in, we see the neighbors next door uh, well across from them actually there's the old lady is you know she's distressed and she's sad and you see that you know she has a uh, dog uh, bed and plate like on the garbage can Mm -hmm. and apparently what happened was Annie and Rachel went for a walk and the old lady's dog bit Annie Mm -hmm. now Annie doesn't realize that because of the dog bite that the dog is getting put to sleep and you know so you know she don't know that there's a rape punishment so what happens is She's in her room. She's drawing the neighbor's house, you know, and then suddenly she's going a little cray-cray with the crayon. (laughs) (laughs) She starts hitting the crayon, making circles and circles and circles, and then hitting the picture. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, the neighbor's house, you hear rumbling. You hear like if there was lightning or something going on, like if the earth was opening up, and suddenly all these rocks are slamming into the house you know crashing into it no one else and people are seeing this you know neighbors are coming out and everything and they're screaming like what's going on and it's because all these rocks are falling from the sky and hitting that house because annie's angry you know Mm -hmm. she's angry that she got hurt and you know so she wants to hurt back you know finally like Rachel calms her down and she stops after already the house being damaged and, and all. Fast forward 10 years later, we're, we're introduced to um, Dr. Joyce Reardon, who's fascinated with Rose Red. Mm-hmm. She wants, to, out of her own pocket money, she's um, putting together a group of, of psychics. And the group of psychics that she's put together, 
she has Pam who can um, touch plane, you know, something she touched, someone owns, she can see what happened, she can, she can translate, like, exactly what was said, you know, she also in the group is Vic, he's uh, someone who can see the future, or see something that happens mere seconds before it actually does, um, Kathy is an automatic writer, mm-hmm. and she can connect with anyone, or it's kind of like, like an open Ouija board, and you got Nick, who's a visionary, like mm-hmm. he can see anything anywhere, like even in a cup of coffee, he can see something going on. And then you got Emery, who can speak to the dead. Emery. <laughs> <laughs> Her thing is that she needs Annie Wheaton because she knows that with Annie's capability, that she can awaken Rose Red that has been dead for a long time mm-hmm. with no activity, no connection to light. Annie, it will be that key in the light that she needs. So she is preparing this group together. So once she has them there, things start arousing up with, you know, uh, with the mansion. Things start going on. People start seeing things. Are they real? Are they not real? And then that's when we come up with chapter two. Yeah, chapter one I thought was really good because you had the setup. I love the uh, Nancy Travis, the uh, professor character. And that's where we kind of find her obsession for sure. And then you got the other professor who's totally against her, right? Yeah, because he show. thinks that she's using the funds from the place. Well, she's not. She's not. But she is using the company's uh, video. She's, and Yeah, she's, she's doing <laughs> some things, but she's not stealing money per se. You know, not that type deal. Uh, but she's definitely using some resources that may or may not be available to her, but she's using them. And this guy is just so, and is, is Dr. Carl Miller. He is so enamored in trying to shut her down. Like he's totally against it. Even to the point he sends the young guy into the classroom to kind of grill her, right? Yeah, he sends his son because his mm-hmm. son's a, a news reporter, a photographer. Mm-hmm. So he, he sends her to provoke her and get her to say things that she shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. So I think the setup of the first chapter is really good because I felt like they, they introduced the house, uh, or at least the characters first, and we do get a little backstory with the house. We see a little bit of Carrie in this with the telekinetic powers, right? Yeah. And the rocks, for sure. You know, if you've seen the original Carrie, you know the house, you know, the rocks falling on the house, so... Stephen King definitely brought that in. Now, I think one thing I do want to mention here is that Steven Spielberg was originally slated. Stephen King wanted him to do a movie out of this script, right? Mm-hmm. And Spielberg was on board, but he told Stephen King, you know, he wanted it to be scary. He wanted to write the scariest haunted house movie ever, right? Mm-hmm. There, there ended up being a little conflict between him and Stephen King on how he wanted this to go. Right, Steven wanted it a little different. Steven Spielberg wanted it more horror. He wanted it more uh, frights and that kind of deal. Stephen King didn't want it that way. There was a conflict, and there ended up being you know the accident. Stephen King's accident happened mm-hmm. uh, in the process, and during that, uh, right before that act, well, it's actually a week before the accident. Spielberg pulled back and said he was out of it. He was not going to do it. And then Stephen King had the accident, and then he wrote the story, right, or the script. Yeah, and. I love, I know you know about it as well, I'm sure, with your research, but I love how that Stephen King said it basically saved his life. It was basically like better than any drug they could give him for rehabilitation was right. You know, he was able to take that process, 
because drugs was not helping the pain, but writing <laughs> did. <laughs> yeah. So basically, Rose Red almost saved this guy, you know. So I think that's exciting. I think something well known and should be known if you don't know it that how important this thing was to him. Uh, so then go back to the story then. <laughs> <laughs> so we go back to chapter one once again. Characters introduced. We know Julian Sands' character, you know, like that. I, I love all these characters are brought in and they all have their own powers mm-hmm. and their own abilities. And you know why she she chose them, right? We know why Dr. Joyce Reardon chose them because of these different abilities they had. She needed all these individuals collectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, Annie Wheaton, the young girl, was named after Will Wheaton's uh, wife, Annie. <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. Will Wheaton, of course, from Stand By Me yeah, and uh, Stephen King uh, movie. So I thought that was kind of cool, a little nod right there. Mm-hmm. But I do like all the characters right now. I like the build-up. I like the the way that he developed that base first in the episode, right? Yeah. I think it was a good episode. Could have been better, sure. I mean, there's a lot of things that could have been tightened up, you know, whatever. But I think overall, it was actually a really interesting episode that got me interested, and then you're ready for episode two to kick in. Yeah. Because now we want to know about the house. We want to really get into the house now. We kind of know who the characters are. We kind of know their powers to an extent, but now we need to know what is this house going to do, right? And that's where chapter two, so take it over for chapter two, love. (laughs) Okay, chapter two, we're introduced to John R. Rumbauer a wealthy oil company owner, had, um, in 1906, Rose Red was built for his wife, Ellen, well, not yet wife, but his fiancée, Ellen Rimbauer, which they did marry a year later, 1907, and Rose Red was a present to her. Seven days into Rose Red being first built, a young man went mentally mad and then disappeared. They never found him. Then three men on the site were killed. One was decapitated. One choked on an apple, and another broke his neck from a fall. Hmm. And in 1950, uh, in Ellen's will, she kept uh, she kept the iron and said after 1950 that no matter what, this house was going to continue being built. That it was going to continue no matter what. And in 19, the same year, 1950, you know, Ellen Rimbauer mysteriously disappeared. Yeah. But going back again in 1972 was the was the last person who disappeared in Rose Red. Rose Red was open yeah. to group tours, and one of the group members wandered off. Right. We don't know if she was looking for the bathroom or what, but all they found was her purse. And since then, they closed it down. So in 1996, after it was closed down, Rose Red stopped growing. It stopped doing anything. No one knows exactly how many rooms exist in Rose Red because, it, you know, one day it can have 15, the next day it can have 35, you right. know. Well, reminiscing on Ellen Rimbauer, a year into their honeymoon, she, they they went for a whole entire year on a honeymoon. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. Within that year, though, she struck ill. She almost lost her life. From then, she was like, she said that it was a disease that was carried by man, but suffered by women. Her, the person who took care of her was Sukina, and she was always known as either her friend or her sister. Mm-hmm. In fact, she brought Sukina back with her when they came back to Rose Red after that, after getting better and after things going well. When she came back, she was also pregnant. Right. She had a son, 
you know, and then also she had a second child, a girl. She blames the deceased because the daughter was born with a withered arm. And the husband and the husband's infidelity. So now we know that the husband wasn't such a good husband. Right. <laughs> Things started going wrong. There was a death. You know, she lost her husband in Rose Red. We don't know how yet until chapter three. Um, this is what we know, and then this is what makes everyone start investigating. They start um, searching the rooms, seeing how things were built. You know, there's a library with a mirror floor, which is beautiful. That's I love gorgeous. it. Gorgeous. <laughs> I know. I love it. I mean, they have a room also where furniture is upside down, and they got a beautiful garden. I mean, every room they go in, but then they start noticing when they want to come back out, it changes. Mm-hmm. So it don't matter if they're using a rope, it don't matter if they're holding hands, it don't matter, you know, it's just things start changing. And it's because each one of them, you know, the house is picking up their energy, you know, it's picking up, you know, all the stuff that they do. And, you know, meanwhile, Joyce is trying to record every, every EPG and everything that she can pick up. From there, that's where we find out exactly how Awaken is Rose Red. Yeah, because in, in this episode is where we start getting a couple deaths, right? Yeah, some activities happening. Uh, but in this one, we get Emery. I love Emery, by the way. <laughs> and his mom. And his oh mom. God, we his got mom. the mom screaming through this whole episode at him. You know, wanting, where's my son? <laughs> where's my son? Not y'all, Emery. Emery. <laughs> And uh, but Emery, like, is able to see things, but then he can close his eyes and say, you're not there, you're not there, you're not real, you know, and it disappears, right? Mm-hmm. So there's some moments in this episode where we find out that he does think something's not happening to the individual. One guy's having a heart attack, and he's trying to get him to let him in, right? Yeah. And Emery says, you're not there, you're not real. No, this dude's having a heart attack, bro. Which is funny because... He says he's one of the strongest in the group, but honestly, he to me, he's one of the weakest. He is definitely the Because weakest. he does not know what is real. He hasn't set aside what's real and what's happening, what's actually going on. Mm-mm. And like you said, yeah, Vic was having a heart attack, and he took it as like, oh, you know, and like, how do you think he, he's dead, you know? Yeah. You would have to think he was dead in order to think like, you know, and tell him go away. And Exactly. And what we had also was the character of Carl Miller, the doctor, who was played by David Dukes. And uh, he's the one that was against this whole situation. He shows up. Well, we don't get to see his death, but he died for real during the filming of this. Yeah, They had to basically uh, have a stunt double or a a double come in and do his actual death scene uh, because he died before he could actually film. So during the filming, that's that's creepy. That is creepy. Really weird. And uh, David Dukes, a great actor, by the way. And I would really like to see that character develop even more in this one because you needed that real big villain. But I guess maybe a villain against the house as well would have been a little bit too much, I guess. Uh, so maybe they played it out it's right. It's the same thing with Emery's mom, though. That that was a little trick. You, you'd think that something happened to her, mm. and it didn't, and then it still does. Yeah. I mean, you learn to love and hate this woman because she is such a... I mean, the whole reason why he, Emery, even decided to do this is because his mom is a spender. Yeah. Like, she spends on bears. Like, 
stuffed animals, everything. Junk. She, <laughs> junk. She thought, I'm a wise spender. And it's like, yeah, right. And you see that bill, $200 for shoes, $500 for a little stuffed bear. And it's like, what are you thinking? But she's like, I bought, I got five, you know, I bought five or I bought four and I got five free. So it's like, but <laughs> what? <laughs> like weird stuff like that, right? Yeah. But I'm saving money because I'm getting a deal. <laughs> and then she, she, when she knew that Emery was going to join the group and get the five grand because they each get five grand except for annie they get ten mm-hmm. you know it's like you know she's all see lord works in mysterious ways <laughs> yeah right so she can spend more spend more um but no in this episode now we get to see the telekinetic powers we get to see the powers of the individuals uh we get to see the fountain uh ellen rimbauer fountain that comes to life uh which is awesome right mm-hmm. these, all these things you know we see how that it's affecting these people that have these abilities, right? Like they mm-hmm. shouldn't be falling for this stuff, but they are, you know, where they're making them think they hear something. That's where Vic goes outside and he's roaming around. And then Vic ends up meeting his demise because of it. Yeah. Cause he's trying to actually find Pam. Pam is the one who leads him out. And he mm-hmm. doesn't realize that Pam's no longer Pam. <laughs> no, Pam is not Pam at all. And you can tell cause of the eyes in the episodes. So it's really cool the way they did some of the visual effects. Now I will say this straight up. Uh, as we continue on, the effects in this one is pretty bad now. Like, if you watch it now, it's not really good. I'll be honest. The only one effect I did really like is the the statue of Ellen Rimbauer, how mm-hmm. that she takes her face, yeah. uh, half face off, you know, the statue, and she just kind of peels it apart, and then she's able to see through, you know, that, right? Yeah. I love that. And that was one of Stephen King. Uh, he said that was his favorite visual effect in this whole movie was that scene. <laughs> And I got to agree, it's pretty damn cool. Yeah. But overall, most of the effects in this movie is pretty bad in standards now as we watch it. That's because we're spoiled and whatever. But I'm going to say it really feels dated when you watch them now. But I, I, I get into it that it doesn't affect me whatsoever. I feel like I'm walking with these people mm-hmm. and, and things are, you know, you are feeling spooked the way you're, you're going to feel going into an unknown room. You don't know what lies you know there which now in chapter three as it continues them searching through the homes we also now see that ellen rimbauer isn't missing right she's living in the house like a vampire know, like a vampire helping it continue grow mm. you know she is the bad of that house you know because she insisted it continue growing and even though she's dead you know mm-hmm she contributes to it. She does. And the third chapter is really good. Like, the wrap-up story of this is really good. Yeah. You know, did you feel like the the ending, the climatic ending of this was was satisfying? Or do you feel like well, it wasn't? Well, I do. Because um, you have uh, Steve Rimbauer. <laughs> okay. You come to find out that he had, like... Which uh, Nick was always trying to push him, like, you do remember. You you know, you Mm -hmm. have a secret. You do remember something about this house. And he remembers when he was a little boy that he went up the attic and he saw something. And, you know, all he remembers is his, I guess, what is supposed to be his grandmother, you know, or his aunt, you know, Ellen Rimbauer, stretching her hand out saying it's okay. And then later on we come to find out that, you know, he has gifts of his own. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's between him and Annie that are the perfect, you know, 
collusion to awaken this house. Right. And what they did was end up awaking Alan Rimbauer. Then, you know, you come to find out that he does remember. And what he did see was John Rimbauer didn't die. He didn't have an accident. He was killed. He was killed for his infidelity and in trying to, like, you know, even make a pass at Tsukina. And what happens is they both tossed him out of the window. Yeah. It was murder. It was murder. (laughs) (laughs) They fed the house. (laughs) Yeah. Or the mansion. Exactly. Um, I thought the character build in this one now, because now we're at the climax, and we're finding out that Annie, the little girl, the autistic, you know, because we saw where Emery and other, Emery figured out, or he thinks he figured out, that she's the reason, like, this house is shutting down, right? Yeah. The house has locked them in. They can't go nowhere, and he noticed that when she uh, was unconscious for a few minutes, the house opened up, like, and he said, he figured out, like, we need to, like, either kill her or we need (laughs) to knock her out so we can get the hell out of this house because the house is not letting them leave. And he's, like, hell-bent even when he loses his fingers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. He's, like, freaking out, and he's like, we got to do something. So he's at the point where he wants to either kill her suffocate her, knock her out, and then he says, if you'll do it, we can get out of here. And it's through a little bit of time that, you know, you can see even uh, Julian Sands' character, some of them are starting to believe him. Like, he's not wrong in this situation. Like, you know, they just need to understand and, and figure out why she's able to, you know, hone in on that. And they need to figure out how to allow the house to let them out. Because at this point, they're done, Right. I think it was also, too, because of Annie's innocence, you mm-hmm. know, the, her autistic side, because of the fact that she related with, you know, the little girl, you know, that, you know, with the withered arm, you know, she had a doll, you know, she disappeared in the house as well. And that was the first spirit that came to her, you know, so she sees it as innocent, you know, but she's not. Yeah, but they were done. Like, they were legit done. Like, they wanted out of the house. They didn't care about anything else they needed to survive because people are dying yeah they're dying and gone missing (laughs) yeah one by one they're all getting wrote off so you know emory and and these characters are now realizing we got to get out of here yeah so now it's to the point of survival so uh the one character once again is nick played by julian sands he's the more fatherly you know, loving, nurturing guy that's trying to calm everybody, but at the same time, he's trying to figure all this out. Freaking Dr. Joyce is just nuts. Nancy is is hell-bent on opening this house and giving everything that she can to make this house give her everything that she's looking for, right? Yeah, so nobody touches Annie. (laughs) Nobody touches Annie whatsoever. And she gets hers in the end, by the way. Yeah, she does. pretty cool way. I loved it. (laughs) But... (laughs) All the characters start, you know, figuring out that the houses, every room they go into turns different. Like, there's no way to come back once you go out. So, uh, just, I like it, love. I really like where it went. Uh, The diary, they found the diary of Ellen Rimbauer in this episode. I believe it was. Was it this one or the second one they found the diary? The second one. The second one. Uh, So, we do get the diary, which a year later, by the way, in 2003... There was actually a same director. They did the Diary of Ellen Rimbauer, the movie. It was a TV movie, made for TV movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, hour and 28 minutes or whatever. Go search it out. 
I actually own the book. It's a little, not a very thick book, but the diary book uh, that you can get. I did buy that back in the day. I have not watched that movie, made for TV movie, in a long time, so I don't even remember it. I remember it. But it's the prequel. Yes, everything about Ellen Rimbauer, like, you know, her getting sick, her, you know, being in the mansion, Mm -hmm. you know, her insisting, you know, it being built more. I mean, it, it is really good, so I would recommend seeing it. I mean, honestly, you know, yeah, I would see it <clears throat> before actually Rose Red, in my opinion. But if not, then watch Rose Red and then mm-hmm. The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer. Well, the one that always catches my attention is Brad Greenquist. Uh, Brad Greenquist from, of course, the Pet Cemetery, original Pet Cemetery. Uh, he's in that movie. He's playing Doug, the Posey, Douglas Doug Posey. So go check it out, Diary of Ellen Rimbauer, the prequel to rose red so overall love the 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 three part miniseries is a really good watch right yeah i don't think it's outstanding i think it has its issues well, it has its fun moments like when they're dancing because annie's <laughs> able to you know make things work so the music's starting then they're dancing in the air and mm-hmm. and the pizza guy comes oh god and who is the pizza guy? <laughs> who is the pizza guy? Stephen King. Oh, yeah. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> they said his cameo is almost like a Where's Waldo type scenario. <laughs> yeah, because he's speaking in. He goes, wow. He's all, can I join? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, overall, it's a good watch. I definitely, is it Stephen King's best? No. I mean, I, I prefer Storm of the Century over this one. But I think it's just for me, I, I dig those type stories a little more. I'm not saying I don't like haunted house movies, I do. Uh, but I would prefer Storm of the Century over this one. But it's still a good watch. And I think everyone should check this one out. Uh, this one is a kind of a take off of uh, Hill House. Yeah, no. Okay, talk to us. <laughs> Correct me, my love. Correct me. Well, King didn't just borrow inspiration from Shirley Jackson. He was also infused by the real-life surroundings of the Winchester house. Yes. Now, now, honestly, the Winchester house, I've been there several times. Oh, God, this is a beautiful place that you can really get lost if you go on your own. Mm -hmm. You know, it is huge. It has the most beautiful garden. I will say this. And the Winchester 2018 movie was a flip-flop. It didn't give it justice. But those who want to know, actually, like the actual Winchester Mystery House was started in 1886 and it and construction ended in 1922. It is in San Jose, California, for those who want to go visit this place. Now, when I used to go, it used to be $12. Mm-hmm. Now it's $42 a ticket, but it's an hour tour. And they take you through only 110 rooms out of the 160 that they know of so far. Only. There are there are known spirits that have been captured on photo. There has been things captured plenty. The only problem with the Winchester house is that it is not wheelchair accessible or for disability. So, you know, you got to have the walking legs because there are many stairs. And there's a $20 garden tour and you would not want to miss the garden tour because there are so many beautiful statues and scary looking ones too. Mm -hmm. This place has like 10,000 windows, 2,000 doors, 160 rooms, 52 skylights, 47 stairs, 17 
chinami, um, 13 bathrooms, 6 kitchens. Back then it was 5 million to do it. Today it's worth 71. And this is where, you know, he got his inspiration from because clearly he has visited the Winchester. I would love for uh, the Horror Chronicles, JT and Ryan, to visit this place. And uh, I know there's some spirits up in there. I'd love for them to do some haunted. They should. Uh, they should. They, they, they definitely should. Make the should. Trip. San Jose, JT, Ryan, you've been challenged, brother. Make it, <laughs> make it happen, dude. I want you to video it and do a live podcast there from Horror Chronicles. Uh, that would be awesome. Okay, so the Winchester, Hell House, those different things, definitely the inspiration from Stephen King. Would you have enjoyed this more if Steven Spielberg had had it and what Spielberg wanted to do with it? Do you think it would have been a better movie? Because I think, think, first of all, it would have been a movie and not a TV series. No, I think it's perfect the way it is because, again, like the way Stephen King is, he gives children gifts for a reason because the ability for them to innocently use their imagination and go with it. You know, and then you got adults who don't believe in what's going on until they actually see what's going on, which makes their imagination kick in. Mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg, with all respect, like, it would have been great in his way, but it would have been a different type of story. I think with him, it would have been just a little more knock on fantasy than than actual based true events that Mm -hmm. scare you because they're true events. I feel like that with Spielberg though I I think it would have been a movie and I don't think it would have turned into a three-part series with Spielberg I would still love to see Spielberg take it on take on it and do a tackle of it and see what happens but I'm pleased with Stephen King's version it's his story it's his baby and I think he done really well with it I think it came out on screen really well so I got to give props you know, the cast and especially the director. I think the director really did a bang-up job on this one, Craig R. Baxley. Uh, this one's 255 minutes total runtime. It originally started with a $3 million budget, shot all the way up to $35 million <laughs> to film this thing. I'm like, wow. Wow. Uh, it's crazy. But it's a really fun watch. So definitely get the book, watch the series, check out The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer if you want to, the prequel. Uh, as Pearl said, watch it first, then watch this, and you know it ties in. I think that would be something you could do. Uh, it's just fun, so I I recommend it wish, definitely. Wish they're on Hulu. There you go, Hulu has it. Hulu. <laughs> uh, you got anything else on this one? Where would you rate this, like on a one to ten scale? Well, for me personally, because I do like paranormal and haunted mansions and things like that. For me, it's uh, eight point five. 8.5 for Pearl. I think I actually rated this. So I'm looking it up real quick to see. I say I rated I did it on my letter to box. Well, I like when you actually get a back background story. Yeah. You know, I like when everything fits in right. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind that either. And like I said, the cast is really good in this one, different things. So, you know, I can't knock this one at all like that at all. Uh, so let's see, my diary. Let's see what I already did rate this one. I think I did do this one on... Uh, no, maybe I didn't. Yes, I did. I gave this thing a 7. So it's a 7 for me, 8.5 for Pearl. And once again, you know, I kind of like... I do. I kind of like, you know, Storm of the Century better. So, But still a good watch. Check it out. It's called Rose Red. Once again, three-part miniseries. It's all on Hulu. Watch the diary of uh, Ellen Rimbauer as well 
on Hulu. Uh, and I think you'd be pleased with it. So, Pearl, what do we got for the next episode? Um, we have Stephen King's Kingdom Hospital. Kingdom Hospital. I'm on, uh, I got the entire series in my hand on DVD where malevolence meets malpractice. Uh, keeping up with the Stephen King theme here that we've been rolling with. That's kind of cool, right, love? Yeah. I love Stephen King. I have not seen this in a hot minute. It's approximately 608 minutes long. It's 13 episodes. So we're going to be breaking these puppies down and we'll be watching it. Just to give you a little teaser, it says uh, Stephen King presents Kingdom Hospital is the haunting new 15-hour drama series developed directly for television by the award-winning best-selling master of horror using Lars von Trier's Danish miniseries Rigid as a point of inspiration, King tells the terrifying story of The Kingdom, a hospital with a bizarre population that includes a nearly blind security guard, a nurse who regularly faints at the sight of blood, and a paraplegic artist whose recovery is a step beyond miraculous. When patients and staff hear the tortured voice of a little girl crying through the halls, they are dismissive of any suggestion of mysticism or unseen powers, but at their own peril. Uh, so, once again, 15 episodes. It's called Kingdom Hospital. Recommend uh, going ahead and checking that out. We've given you a two-week notice, okay? So, you got two weeks to go ahead and start watching this thing, and uh, <laughs> then you can follow along with us, right, love? Yep. I love it. So, this is going to be exciting. So, keeping up with Stephen King. You could do a whole Stephen King podcast. We, we mentioned this before. Like, we could legit just do Stephen <laughs> King every episode. Uh, but anyways, Kingdom Hospital, go check it out. Uh, this has been the uh, Rose Red. Once again, everybody tuned in to uh, Black Love Mysteries. Hope you enjoyed that as well with Ian Erz and myself. Had a great time. So, love, we got this coming up. Our next episode of LOTC is our top five horror movies of 1970, correct? Yes. Which Pearl's not too happy because it's just not in your wheelhouse. 1970 is just not my year. So... <laughs> bear with her <laughs> yeah <laughs> please <laughs> we've been cramming i've been cramming a lot of movies in for research so i hope everybody enjoys that uh so with that said love what you got for closing it, it was fun watching rose red even though it's probably what my fourth fifth God, time <laughs> or mercy you watched it so many times yeah i know sorry not nah, don't be sorry <laughs> but it was fun and i look forward to our next one yep well, everyone knows where to find me <laughs> letterbox <laughs> just follow the trail of candy. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I'll be like, ooh, another one. <laughs> ah, got it. <laughs> it's usually in a straight path. Just do not go into the van. <laughs> no. Avoid the vans and hard candy. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, follow Pearl, of course, Twisted Temptress, and uh, all those good stuff. And then for me, you can follow me Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Letterboxd, all them places. Follow uh, Jay the Dead's new horror movie podcast, the other podcast that I'm on, uh, as well as, of course, right here. Email us, dragonmortis666 at gmail.com. Call the hotline, 1-804-569-5682. We love you guys and gals. Appreciate everything that you do for the show, your support, your love. Uh, all that is deeply appreciated. We love you. Thank you for making LOTC what it is, family. Yep. This is just a family podcast. Greatest, greatest family community we got. Ever. Ever, ever, ever since the beginning of time. You know, you make me think of, uh, what is it? Sandlot. 
when he thought forever. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> I love Sandlot. All right, so we love you guys. We'll see you on the flip side. Help keep horror alive. We do that one movie time, one review at a time. Till next time. Peace. Wow. <laughs>